I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 30 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Today, Daniel Hedrick, associate pastor of Northside Drive Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, joins the podcast for a conversation with Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas on being a Christian citizen in an election year. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Daniel Hedrick. Reverend Daniel Hedrick is associate pastor of Northside Drive Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to joining Northside Drive, he practiced civil litigation with a law firm in Knoxville, Tennessee. He is a former fellow of both the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and the fellowships at Auschwitz for the study of professional ethics. And he is a regular contributor to the Christian Citizen. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hey, thanks, Curtis. Uh, it's a delight to be with you. In your latest article, Being a Christian Citizen in an Election Year, you write about the discord and polarization we are experiencing today. You write that people who identify as Christians seemingly cannot agree on anything about the common good. And it's true, is it not, that we almost seem to be living in separate worlds at this point? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and there are different ways of coming at that. But, um, you know, you could come at it from the angle of just um, looking at the different sources of news media that people consume that create different constructions of reality, for one thing. Um, the way social media has fractured uh, and the way isolation during a pandemic has made certain kinds of conspiratorial thinking more more prominent um, has contributed to an alternative reality, basically. So I think that the root of it is, as a people, um, we don't we don't have a shared, robust agreement about what the facts are, or even the value of facts, and so it makes uh, it makes conversation and discourse almost impossible. Do you see that uh, playing out in your congregational context? Do you see that division between folks? Not in, not in our congregation as much. We're we're fairly small congregation, progressive kind of left leaning. Um, although you know there there are interesting exceptions to that. Um, but I think you know if if you would ask a member of our congregation about that, what they would say is they see it showing up with family members, um, and they see it in their um, their social community online. They have somebody they went to high school with or a family member who thinks that. Um, you know, that wearing a mask um, is optional or uh, is actually some kind of uh, bureaucratic um, terrorism or something. Um, and so that's how it shows up, I think, in the life of the congregation. But but we've been very fortunate. You know, I have I've um, heard many horror stories of congregations where there's a division about this. And that usually plays out in terms of fights about um, when we when we should come back to worship. And so we've been blessedly spared from some of the, that discord. Yeah. How does the church begin to bridge that gap uh, between citizens who see and interpret events in such disparate ways? Well, I think um, in a number of ways, um, I wouldn't want to put all the responsibility on clergy, but I would at least want to start there. You would want to start with yourself um, in modeling the kind of behavior you would want people in the congregation to show. Um, 
And there'd be different levels of uh, discourse, I think, that would be appropriate to clergy and, and lay members, right? So I think clergy have a responsibility um, to call out conspiracy theories um, and and say that uh, QAnon um, is, is not a valid way of, of thinking about reality, for example. And I know a number of pastors have done that. Uh, and I think you, you've written about these conspiracy theories uh, for the Christian citizen in another context. So it starts there with clergy um, taking a stand on just the importance of truth, you know, and uh, especially when there's a culture of lies that I think really constitutes American society. Um, we have to reiterate that, that that's not a Christian value, you know, to, to say things that are blatantly and provably false. Um, and then, you know, I, I think you would expect uh, the congregation um to model that behavior as, as a follower of Jesus in the same way. They may not be addressing the congregation, but they may be addressing each other or people in their their peer and social groups. One of the points I wanna make in the article though, is that, um, and this is me preaching to myself as much as anyone, um, is that there, there's a real need, I think, for us to escape our our echo chambers. You know, we have, I, I think Christians have really got to move beyond um, getting getting it right, getting the issues right. Because within our quote unquote peer groups, um, uh, the, the, the people that are in our echo chamber, we, all are, we already know what constitutes orthodoxy, right? Uh, we know where we should stand on particular issues. And the challenge is, um, are you doing anything constructive by just reiterating those views to the people in your group? Um, are we called to more robust engagement with um, those who see things differently? And I think, I think the answer is yes. With the caveat, Curtis, that there are some people that are not amenable um, to having a conversation. You know, trolls and people who shout you down, um, people who um, want to result to uh, just ad hominem attacks on you as an individual. Um, there may not be constructive dialogue, but people are willing to have a conversation. Um, you know, we we need to work on on reaching them, and we're not good at that. And I think social media has made it made us worse at that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's that's a difficult task on social media. How do you see that playing out? That kind of substantive engagement and dialogue. How do you see that? Uh, how do we move forward with that? In, in a community context? Well, I think just, um, you might start in the life of the congregation with encouraging um, members to have um, conversations with people they're actually in relationship with, right? Um, I think it's, it's too abstract to say, um, you know, we should just try to reach a broad audience as congregation members um, with people that we don't really know or have a relationship with. So start start with the relationships you have, okay? And if people have differences, you probably don't have, most people don't have a lot of experience sitting down and having those tough Thanksgiving dinner, you know, conversations um, about the things that matter in life, you know? And, and so if you can't do it with the people you love, um, you're certainly not gonna do it well with the people that you've never met before. Um, and so maybe that just starts with your family of origin, you know? This Thanksgiving, uh, instead of boycotting Thanksgiving, you know, um, set aside some time before you get to the dinner table and say, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about how this is going to go. 
um, because I know you voted for so-and-so in the last election. And, um, but this matters to me. Um, and, and these are the, th- these are the reasons that it matters to me. Um, and th- that kind of gets it out of yourself. Um, that that's the best I can do is start with the people you love, you know, in your article, which is something of an extended meditation on Paul's letter to the Philippian church, you note that for Paul, salvation was a communal affair. Um, what are the challenges of communicating that truth in a society in which a kind of rugged individualism is held up as a norm and uh, celebrated even within the community of faith? I think in terms of uh, ways we kind of talk about Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. How do you how do you get at that deeper, I think, richer understanding of salvation as as a communal affair? Well, the simplest way to answer it is um, I I don't think you can get at it for the globe. Um, That's not the church's job um, to offer an argument, uh, a generic argument that's persuasive for all people at all time. Um, I think you have to start with being a witness um, to Christ in your local community. So the short, the, the quickest way to answer your question first is say we have to model communal salvation in our community by saying that we stand for, you know, the common good. Um, and, and that's the most the, lo- the local church can do, and that actually is more impactful than, than the um, absurd proposition that we have to come up with an argument that all people at all times would accept. Nobody can do that, right? But so I really follow people like Stanley Hauerwas in, in some ways in his theology about, um, you know, the church is an alternative politics. Um, and so the best way to be a witness is to model following Jesus um, in your local congregation. Um, I don't, you know, there, there's always people who are going to disagree. Um, I, let me say a couple more things about this specific point, just to reorient my thinking. Um, one of the huge challenges that you've identified, and I talked about in the article, is that in American evangelical theology, there is this um, sort of bias against thinking about systems, that's the way I would put it, Right. And so there's a debate um, right now in in American evangelicalism about whether something called systemic racism even exists, right? And by that, I mean, are there systems of power and institutions that have contributed to racist practices and and racist effects in society? Um, And the alternative way of thinking about it, if you don't believe in, in, in systems and institutions that can contribute to racism, is that things like racism are merely products of individual and interpersonal um, sin, right? And so it's just, you know, it's a bad apple when a police officer um, shoots uh, an African-American in the back. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broken down system of sin in that individual. And what I um, have come to believe, rather, is that there are whole systems that, yes, there's individual sin, but there's whole systems of institutional racism that contribute to that happening much more frequently. And what I'm saying is that I think, you know, and I didn't invent this, many other people have said this, that our theology um, may blind us from seeing systems. If you think that salvation is simply just between you and God and the common good is just between you and God, then you're blind to the way in which institutions and systems can contribute to our brokenness. I hope that answer, that was a long answer, but that's sure. a lot there. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you note um, a tendency within conservative leaning 
congregations, to your point, this tendency to emphasize individual salvation to the exclusion of justice. What is the temptation that liberal-leaning congregations face? Yeah, I, I think it's um, that we're just talking to ourselves, um, that we talk about justice. But if you were to do an, um, a kind of uh, a truth-searching analysis of what impact that we're actually making, uh, we might all be disappointed by that answer. And so I think the temptation um, in more progressive settings of Christianity is that there's this great pressure to have fidelity to um, to a certain way of speaking and a certain way of thinking. Of course, that happens in conservative areas too. Um, but but perhaps there's a divorce between our language and our ethical practice. And all I'm calling us to is a greater fidelity um, to practice, to ethical practice. And, and there's ways of talking about that. Echo chamber is an important, is a helpful word, I think, you know. Um, is it just slogans that we're repeating that we're for social justice, but what have we done actually to help the cause, you know? And so that that's uh, at least a partial indictment uh, of my own life. Um, I spend a lot of time talking about things, less time doing. So I want to be better there too. Sure. We live in a time where uh, our access uh, to information is unbelievable. Um, more and more people are getting their news and information from social media. And yet a fair amount of uh, what we're reading and following is quite superficial. Um, how is faith an antidote or how might faith be an antidote to that superficiality? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, a couple of um, things. I think for, first to slow down. Um, one of the things I lament in my own life and in, the, in, in our shared uh, our shared life together as a people is how we seem we seem to always uh, be looking around with very short attention spans at what's happening in the world around us, right? And 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 news media sort of dominates our attention, so that one day we're all talking about X, and tomorrow we'll be talking about Y. And we've forgotten what X was by the time we get to tomorrow. Uh, and so I think slowing down and then uh, uh, is number one. Number two, not allowing uh, the, the media discourse to dictate what are the things that we should focus on as a community, right? Because if you're going to allow the attention span of social media to dictate the direction of the church, then it is going to be completely ineffective and disjointed and uh, no attention span whatsoever. And so I think we have to sort of, you know, Christians need to begin reclaiming um, the space for deep focus and concentration and naming, uh, you know, the issues that, the, the one or two issues that we can do well, rather than the thousand issues that we're all incensed about. We're good at getting angry. Uh, we're not so good at, um, at focusing on uh, a joyful response to what God is calling us to do. That, to me, is sort of a rough outline of um, uh, an antidote that faith can provide to our our superficiality. I'm reminded of something uh, T.S. Eliot wrote. He uh, wrote, where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Where's the knowledge we've lost in information? And, of course, he was writing long before <laughs> social media, certainly, long before the rise of the Internet. Uh, there is that tendency, I think, to be distracted 
um, and uh, and maybe slowing down is 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 good advice or pulling back a little bit from that. I know in my own practice, I try not to go on social media uh, because it's such an easy thing to do in between um, email and whatever else we're doing, just checking in and you get down a you know path there pretty quickly. Well, and I think T- that's a great quote. I didn't know that from T.S. Eliot. And I'm sure if he were alive, he would tell us to read more books and read more poetry, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. What is, uh, what is a way forward? Um, you, you write about this a little in the article, a way forward for an engaged, responsible Christian citizen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, in just following the, the, the logic that Paul has in the letter of Philippians, that was sort of, I've been studying Philippians, it's been the lectionary, so that's why it was on my mind. But um, he is encountering, um, we don't know the details, but he's encountering a fractured a congregation. You know, he calls out people by name, Iodia and Sintike. We don't know what they were fighting about. Maybe one was a Trump supporter. Maybe one was a Biden supporter. We don't know. Right. But he's calling them to a deeper unity. He says over and over again, um, you know, to be of the same mind, um, which we look at and think, oh, that means we have to think exactly the same thing about every issue. And that's not what he's talking about. I think he's talking about when he says mind, I think he's fundamentally calling the church and us to a unity of spirit and purpose and mind in Christ Jesus. That's really the message, that that our deepest unity comes from being unified in the body of Christ, right? And so that, I think, if, if we're oriented towards that, then you have to have um, a sort of deep conversations about all, what are the things that are tangential um, and really not essential to the living of communities, uh, of Christian communities. The things that we've ended up fighting about, are those really worthwhile disputes? Um, or are they simply reflections of deeper divisions in American political society? Um, and so we do that, I think, you know, and then you might ask, okay, that sounds great. How do we do that? How do we have uh, unity in Christ? Um, and I think it's it's like all um, of the best of Christian spirituality. It's always a combination of that kind of devotional life of prayer and reading and uh, ethical practice. Uh, so it's not one or the other. It's not just simply sitting in your room and, and praying all day, although that would be a lovely thing. But it's also serving uh, the least of these, as Jesus calls us to in Matthew 25. And so it is a life of, of contemplation, and it's also a life of um, living towards the just community that God calls us to. Um, I was taught in uh, in trial school back in my litigation days when I was an attorney, when you're making closing argument to a jury, should always emphasize what are the things that we can agree on? Can't we agree, you know, on on the following? And I think we tend to emphasize what do we disagree about? And so I would really want to find what are the areas of commonality? That's what I mean by the common good. Um, I think when we come down to it, societies really do want um, to have health uh, and to have safety. we disagree about methodologies getting there. Um, and so what can we agree on? And that, that's a difficult conversation. I think the, the church can help model that. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts for our listeners, your closing argument, as you say. Yeah, so I, I think we can agree that um, social media is not making your life better. <laughs> um, although we all live with it, um, 
in, in our vocations and in our personal life. Um, and so what I think if Paul were writing today, he would add a sentence about, you know, stay off Twitter um, and uh, don't don't feed the trolls. Um, Maybe may, may uh, Christian ethical injunctions. Um, but but focus on j- the joy that is in your particular context. Uh, um, and by joy, I mean the living presence of God. Um, how is God present to you in the working out for the common good uh, of your life in your particular community? Um, rather than, I'm mad at so-and-so because they said something ridiculous on Facebook. Uh, that That's my closing argument. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. It was great joy. Thanks for uh, the honor of inviting me. You can read Daniel's latest article, Being a Christian Citizen in an Election Year, and more at christiancitizen.us. And while you're there, I hope you'll subscribe to the Christian Citizen Weekly for access to new content each week it appears. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you to this week's guest, Daniel Hedrick. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.